We're looking at the book of Revelation, which is God sending us a gift, how it all ends, so we can make our life conform to what we know the future is. We have a unique uh, insight. You know, when, when po- politicians or, or financial sector people make stock trades because they know about stuff before the public knows about it, we call it insider trading, and it's illegal. But God says, this is legal. I'm going to tell you how everything's going to end so you can adjust your life to get ready for it. Isn't that neat? And so this is really special knowledge. So why does God give humans a taste of hell? Well, what, what is the taste of hell? Well, in the broadest sense, it's the tribulation, okay? The tribulation is kind of like a slow motion, uh, you know, river going into hell. But God is, it's kind of like, you know, the salmon are going upstream and, and the fishermen are grabbing them as they're going upstream. God, out of the, the river going toward hell, is grabbing people. He's saving them through what we've seen, the, the 144,000, the two witnesses, the, the gospel angel. But specifically, the tribulation that I've shown you so many times comes to a crescendo. Now, that's what we're going to today. It's God's final wrath. Revelation 15 and 16 surround the seven bowls. And the seven bowls, now now these aren't like cereal bowls. These we would call kind of shallow bowls, even like, um, you know, in fancy meals where they have multiple courses. They have these shallow soup bowls. They're wider, but they're not very deep. That's what they used in the temple uh, for all these, you know, drink offerings and everything that they did. They didn't want to be pouring out, you know, gallons. They were just doing a little bit. These bowls are a shallow dish that quickly can be dumped, and, and that's, it's the word that's used. I mean, the reason for using that maybe is that they come so fast. But here's number one. This is in my journal. The first thing I wrote as I read Revelation 15, how many of you have started reading the book of Revelation? Raise your hand. How many of you aren't interested in Revelation and haven't started yet? Don't raise your hand. <laughs> I wouldn't do that to you. Oh, I saw that. You are a good... I, I, I didn't look at your names yet. Uh, I'll look at them in the second hour, but I can't wait to see what clever things you guys have thought of as you register. But in my journal, I've already read this, and I wrote Rapid Fire Wrath. This is one of the saddest points in Scripture. At the end of Revelation 15, Christ has run out of patience. I mean, you talk about someone that has a lot of patience. Jesus has perfect patience. Uh, Can you imagine growing up with him? Psalm 69 is a description of what it was like to grow up with Jesus. It talks about his brothers didn't like him and his other people around him. It's a prophetic psalm looking forward to the birth of, or the advent of the Messiah. But can you imagine growing up with Jesus? He never got impatient. He never got angry. He was never selfish. He didn't disobey his parents, even though they thought he did when he stayed behind at the temple. But he looked at him and said, how could I be disobeying you because you're supposed to be leading me to seek God and I was seeking God. But Jesus has perfect patience. By the way, Psalm 69 says that nobody liked him growing up. Isn't that interesting? Jesus understands what it's like to be ostracized at school, to be the one that's not the cool, popular. He wasn't because he was perfect. And nobody likes to be around anybody perfect. How would you like to grow up with a perfect sibling? Wow. But his wrath ends. I mean, his patience ends and his wrath is coming. 
And there's something new in verse 8. There's always been a glory cloud, but rarely smoke. You understand what I mean when we're talking about the, the things of God. Smoke showed up on Mount Sinai because the law spoke of judgment. Remember, it was rumbling up there with God on the mountain with Moses. But never in the earthly tabernacle or temple except here. And all of a sudden what we see is the heavenly temple that's portraying the earthly place of God, it starts having smoke coming out of it. What's that? It's the fiery wrath of God. And God's mercy has ended. The smoke probably indicates that the way to God's presence is now closed. See, God had done the church, chapters 1, 2, and 3. Then the church goes to heaven, 4 and 5. And then the tribulation starts and the 144,000 in 7 launch their ministry through all that horrible stuff going on. And then God sends the second team, the, the two witnesses. And then God sends the final team, the gospel angel. And the gospel angel goes everywhere, talks to everyone. God is not willing that any should perish. Even in the tribulation, he's, he's reaching down and trying to get as many as possible. But chapter 15, boom. It's, uh, I wrote this. The way of forgiveness, guidance, cleansing, and blessing is over. And no one can enter after that. It's very interesting to think about it being too late. Someday it will be too late, just like it was in the days of Noah. When, the, when God shut the ark door, have you read Genesis lately? Genesis 6, 7, and 8, the flood? After a hundred years building the ark, and after all the time it took for animals to start collecting all over the earth and started pairing up and they started, it must have been amazing to live back then, to look up and you saw this river of animals orderly walking to the ark, paired up. And they didn't just walk there, they went in. I mean, it's amazing. But after that whole event, God shuts the door. By the way, there's no handle on the door. It's very interesting. God shut it, and God opened it. Very, I mean, if I was teaching Genesis, I'd talk to you about that. It's a beautiful picture of salvation. Everybody inside was saved. Everybody outside wasn't saved. The ones inside were shut in by the Lord. They couldn't get out. That means eternal security. And it means that only, by the way, you know what it says? That God called to Noah and said, Come into the ark. God was already in the ark. Salvation is going into where God is. And he shut the door and nobody else got in. It was too late. That's the, the door shutting is what we're sadly seeing right here. The Lord saw with Noah that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and it grieved his heart. So the Lord said, I'm going to destroy man whom I've created, both man and beast and creeping things and birds. I'm sorry I made him. Genesis 6, 5 and 7. The smoke in Revelation 15.8 portrays the final outpouring of God's tribulational wrath. And he said, that's it. It's really sad. Also, if you go to Genesis, I mean, Revelation uh, 15, let me get there with you. Look at verse 3. And they're singing, this is the last song. Remember a few days ago I showed you a chart of all the, the songs and all the prayer, the worship offered in Revelation, the, the 14 of them, 
this is the last one of the songs. Remember, the angels don't sing until after this is finished, but the saints are singing, and they're singing, wow, great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty, verse 3, true and just are your ways, O King of the saints. Wow, what a, this is the final song of scriptures. It's amazing. And then in verse 5, Jesus Christ is victorious. Now, what I, what I love about this is, and as you're getting to read it, after these things I looked, remember John is witnessing all this and he's recording it. He's like, an, he's like one of those uh, reporters that are standing at whatever event, you know, whether it's a storm or the, the tornado or the hurricane or whatever. He's reporting and they're telling the eyewitness account. He's saying, I looked and behold, verse 5, the temple, the tabernacle, the testimony in heaven was open and out of the temple came seven angels having seven plagues clothed in pure bright linen. By the way, when you ever you see someone in heaven, what do they look like? Very modest. You should think about that. When God is directly in charge of the dress code, there's no question. God invented clothing. Clothing is not for show. It's for modesty. And it's a choice all of us make as believers, whether we want our clothing to reflect God or our clothing to reflect the God of this world. And every day when you get dressed, you're reflecting either God or the God of this world, Satan. Very interesting. But how did we get on that? Because they're wearing, look at this, they're clothed in pure bright linen. They have their chest girded with golden bands. And one of the four living creatures gave the seven angels seven golden bowls full of wrath, the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And here it is. The temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God, from his power. And no one could enter the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. Wow. It's, it's interesting how it says that he saw this amazing, I mean, in, in verse 4, I mean, I, I didn't read that. Let me back up. Uh, and I saw something like a sea of glass in verse 2, mingled with fire, and those who had the victory over the beast, over his image, over his mark, and over the number of his name, standing in the sea of glass, having harps of gold. And then they're the ones singing. This whole scene, I mean, chapter 15, I hope in your 10 choices, maybe some of you will pick chapter 15, is loaded with stuff. This, this is what I wrote. Actually, this, this Jesus Christ is victorious note is actually going back to the song in verse 3 as well as all the way to 7. But look what I wrote. Now I want to show you the triumph that the patience of Christ produces. I saw something like a sea of glass. It's not an actual sea of glass, but it's like a sea of glass. I don't know what it is, and we shouldn't try and figure it out, but it's crystal clear, and it in indicates the holiness of God. Nothing is hidden. That's what glass, that's why see-through. Nothing is hidden. It's all clear. But look at this. Mingled with fire. That scene, remember I told you there's a river of fire flowing out. I didn't tell you. Daniel told you in Daniel 7, verses 9 and 10, that out from the steps going up to the throne of God is a river of fire flowing. And so all that, look, it's mingled with fire. It's kind of reflecting in this, this crystal glass stuff. 
it speaks of the fire of persecution, the fire of refinement through which these saints have gone. They have victory. See what it says? They have victory over the beast uh, and over the number of his name and over his image, all that stuff. So they, they went through all that persecution. And now they're standing on that sea of glass and God gives them harps. That's where the whole thing about just sitting around having playing a harp comes from because we see these harps. But look at what I wrote. This is what I mean by you can apply this to your life. From a human perspective, all the people standing on that sea, if you really read carefully what it says, were simply killed on earth. And that's the end of them. See, that's how humanly people look at it. Well, all those people got killed. But that's not how God portrays them. That's our humanness. What Jesus already said is whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. These people are standing, these martyrs are standing on that, that crystal sea that's got this fire reflected in it, and, and they're put on display before the God of the universe, and he said, these people did what my son said. They didn't go through life trying to save every ounce of their life to have the best time possible, the most comfortable, convenient, secure life possible. Do you remember John Piper, the, the, the great Christian writer that's always stirring us up with what he writes? Do you remember he wrote his little book, you know, Don't Waste Your Life? You might have missed it. You know, it was maybe 20 years ago. And what he does is he tells a story of, of two older women. Both were in medical profession, and they both, when they reached retirement age, because they had done so well, one a doctor and one a, I don't know, a nurse, I don't know what, but they went to Africa, because in America you're too old to work in the system, you're 65 or whatever it was. So they went to Africa and volunteered in one of these needy clinics, and they were driving a missionary vehicle, and you know what most missionary vehicles are, after a car wears out, we donate it, you know, to the mission. You, you wouldn't give them a new one, you give them the one that wears out. So they were driving this old worn out car that someone donated to the mission in Africa, and they were rounding a corner on a mountain road, and the brakes gave out, and their car kept going, and it went off the edge, and the American newspaper said, great tragedy in Africa, two, re you know, past retirement age Women, medical professionals were in a car and the brakes failed and they tragically died. And Piper said, tragically died? What part was a tragedy? He said they, they gave the, their lives to the Lord, they served him with the neediest people and they got nothing back in return and they were even driving dumpy stuff because that's all that was available and they offered their lives for me. So he said, you know what the real tragedy is? And then he reads an article about a couple from Boston, Massachusetts that had a high-tech company that cashed in and sold it at the high part. And in their 50s, they made millions and mega-millions from their high-tech company. And they bought a beautiful yacht. They had every accoutrement. And they spent their life sailing around all the beautiful parts of the world collecting seashells. And Piper's whole book goes like this. He said... Which do you think is going to count in heaven? The elderly two ladies that died in the crash after offering everything they had to Christ, and they come up and stand in front of the throne and say, this is what we did for you. Or that American dream couple that spent their life 
collecting shells. And they said, oh, Lord, look at all these shells we collected in our lives and our suntan because we sailed the world. And there's nothing wrong with suntans or shells or sailing. There's everything wrong with looking at life that is measured by how much fun and comfort and convenience and security I can have. Did you know most of the things we do for the Lord are uncomfortable, they are very insecure, and they are very inconvenient? I know. I mean, I, I had two daughters that for the last 12, 14 years, they've been living in the jungles of Central America with all the army ants. I mean, they, they would tell us, they say, we were walking home the other night, my one daughter said, and as we walked, it felt soft like we were on carpet, and we wondered, oh boy, I wonder what that is. And we got back into our house, and the army ants, a river of them this wide, had, had crossed across where their house is, and they were actually walking on army ants, you know, those fire ants, those red, they really bite. And so that was one time. You know what the next time they said? One of my daughters says, hey, I woke up, and the army ants this time had come up the side of our house, in through the eaves, you know, they, they are very loosely constructed, down the wall a foot wide, and they just cut across the corner of the bed, and I could feel them, but they never got out of line, I could feel them brushing against my head, and when I woke up and looked, they were going up the wall and out the other side of the house. Did you know that's quite inconvenient to live that way? With scorpions? They can't even get out of bed without turning on their, they have uh, those UV light or black lights or whatever you call them and scorpions glow in the dark. So before you get out of bed, you take your flashlight and go like this and see if there's a spot you can put your feet so you can walk to the bathroom and not step on one. And then you come back with a hammer and you go and kill them. See, that's very inconvenient. But boy... Does that matter when you stand in front of Christ? Think about these people as a picture. The earth would say they just died, kind of like those women going off the corner of the road in Africa, but God said no. They sang a new song, great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty, and we got to be a part of it, just and true are your ways, even though we got martyred, it's good. Verse 4, who should not fear you, Lord God, and glorify your name, that's what we want to do, for all the nations will come and worship before you, and we were part of it. They were part of bringing all the nations to Christ. From a human perspective, all the people standing in the sea were simply killed, and that was the end of them, but not to God. And by the way, what God thinks is what matters. Okay, now let's go to chapter 16. Christ's compassion is mankind gets a taste of hell. What we're going to see in this chapter is these bowls of wrath. The sores, the sea of blood, the rivers, they are rapid. They come very quickly. They're horrible as you read about them, and I'm going to describe them. And then they end at the end when the Lord said it's done. And Armageddon and all that stuff. Well, what I call it is earth becomes a living hell. So it's like everybody gets to see something. Have you ever wondered what the world would be like without Jesus? Hitler freed Germany from their consciences and brought the killing fields, the gas chambers, an industry of death. That was the darkest hour of the 20th century. But mankind's unending fight with God at last brings them the freedom they always wanted, 
life without God. And what does life become without God? Chapter 16 tells us, a living death, a living hell of inutterable blackness. So what is it like? Well, number one, life without Jesus is horrible. That's how I summarized, you know. You know how you're writing your chapter titles? My chapter title once was, you know, Earth Becomes a Living Hell. The next time I read it, read it through, I wrote this, Life Without Jesus is Horrible. Have you ever wondered what the world would be like without Jesus? Perhaps you're seeking but haven't found him. I always, in my journal, think of this evangelistically. You know, people are fascinated with Revelation. I actually sit at coffee shops doing this reading and writing my devotional guide. I can't tell you how many times I've been busily with my Bible, marking and coloring in it, and with my journal writing, when all of a sudden you sense someone standing there, I look up, and, and people at Starbucks, at Panera, they'll come up and they'll, they'll stand there for a while, and finally when you look up, they say, what are you doing? I go, I'm studying the Bible. Why? Why are you doing that? Do you have a class? I said, no, I just love it. What are you? I even have them say, what are you finding? I mean, people have this background interest in the Bible. It's like it's this mystery book. And so I actually, you know, I wrote this one because I thought, well, if someone came over and asked me, I, I'd say, well, let me read you. This is what I wrote. Uh, you're considering God, but you haven't decided. You're looking. You haven't put your heart's desire in Christ and chosen to follow him. If that's where you are, pay close attention to the 16th chapter. It shows what life without Jesus is going to be like. It's the most graphic, vivid, and powerful description in the scriptures of what hell will be like. Life apart from Jesus is living hell. And he wants us to see that the seven bowls of his wrath are the coming result of rejecting him. Okay? Now, let me just show you something. I'll animate this because something fascinating about the Bible, it was supernaturally engineered by God. Not only does this correspond with the plagues of Moses in Egypt, I told you that a few days ago, how, you know, God decimates all the gods of this world that people follow. But even the structure of the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls, there's a parallel to them. So the bottom line are the seven trumpets we already covered in Revelation 8, 9, 10, and 11. You know, the burning trees and the mountain of fire, you know, and the comet coming. I've talked to you about that so many times. But look what the bowls are. Soars on all the, the people with the mark of the beast, the sea becomes blood, and all died. Now look at below it. The mountain of fire hit the sea, and only a third died. What you see is God is giving people a sample with the trumpets. I call it the judgments of the thirds. You see in red there. Notice all those were a third, a third, a third of all the green grass, a third of all the creatures in the sea, a third. Now it's not a third. It's all. All the creatures in the sea die. All the rivers of water become blood in the third bowl. The sun scorches with fire. It's not just the sun diminishes a third in its luminous, luminance, luminescence. There we go. Not only that, but now it's, it gets turned up. It's like, whoa, it's overheating. Then darkness comes. Remember, there was darkness when the demons came out and the clouds filled. And then, uh, back in the sixth trumpet, the Euphrates angel you know, killed a third of men, the four angels and that army. Now we come to the kings of the east, the Armageddon thing. And then look, 
after those frogs come and, and get everybody to come, look what the Lord says in the seventh bowl. It is done. But look what it says in the seventh trumpet. It is finished. So what, what I'm trying to show you as you read is there's this beautiful parallelism. What lessons? Number two, life without Jesus is like having a deadly incurable cancer. Jesus has sanctifying power. He's the one who cleanses and keeps us. By the way, have you let him sanctify and cleanse you from the inside out? Christianity is not turning over new leaves. It's giving the leaf to the Lord. And he tr changes us from the inside out. That's Christianity. Jesus has life-giving power. He's the one, John 10.10, 10, who gives abundant life. But in these three verses, God shows us that if you choose to go through life without Jesus, it's like the worst kind of cancer. Look at Verse 1, I heard a loud voice from the temple saying, go, pour out the bowls. Verse 2, so the first one poured out the bowl, and a foul and loathsome sore came upon all the men who had the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. And then the blood like a dead man. It's just illustrating. In fact, Frank Peretti, the this present evil darkness world, the guy that wrote all those popular books uh, 20, 30 years ago, he wrote one about this, and everybody that was secretly sinning, they just had this black oozing out. You know, it would ooze out of their clothes, it would ooze out of their sleeves. It's a really gross book to read, but what he was saying is, that's how God sees sinners, oozing the blackness of sin. And that's what happens. Number one, life without Jesus is like having deadly incurable cancer. Verse five, only God is eternally self-sufficient and needing nothing. Um, in verse 5, and I heard the angel of the water saying, you're righteous, you're the one who is and who was and who is to be because you have judged these things. Do you remember I told you I wrote it down here? This is another reminder of all 25 of our God's attributes declared and illustrated in Revelation. So I got, and I'm going to read it to you here, I grabbed my systematic theology and notice God is eternal and independent. Those are two of the attributes of God. There are 25 that all theologians have agreed upon. There are communicable, incommunicable, all these different, you know, attributes of will, attributes of being, all these things. It's all, it's woo. But let's talk about what it means. Do you know what God's, when it says there, you're the one who is and was and who is to be, that's his eternity, his timelessness. Let me read to you about that. God's eternity may be defined as followed. God has no beginning. No end, no succession of moments in his being. He sees all time equally vividly. Yet God sees these events in time and acts in time. Sometimes this doctrine is called God's infinity with respect to time. So that's interesting. What is the self-sufficient part? God is the only being in the universe that doesn't need anything to continue to exist. Because he's uncreated. Everything else is from Satan on down, right to us. And right to every infusora, every plant, everything, anywhere on earth, any, any spirit being in the universe are created. So they need something to keep them alive. You know what it says in Colossians? By him all things consist. You know what it says in Hebrews? He's the God of all spirits. He even keeps spirits alive. You know what he said in Daniel 5? I hold your life's breath to Belshazzar. What God is saying is, I'm the only self-sufficient, independent one. 
By the way, what does every American that thinks at all about life want to be? They want to be independent. What do all little kids want to be and fight with their parents? They want to be independent. They, want, they don't want anybody controlling them or telling them what to do or anything else. We want financial independence. We want every kind of independence. God is the only one that's independent. And people that come to him submit to him. They bow to him. Christians in the New Testament are called his servants. Actually, that's a light translation of the word doulos. Doulos actually means slave. Actually, Christians sign up to be God's slaves. And when you look at the Bible, there's only two things left in Revelation 22. God and his slaves. That's actually what, when you get there, it's bond slaves or bond servants. Because the only people that get to heaven are the ones who are not independent. They bow. And they say, I'm a sinner. You died in my place. I have no hope on my own. I ask for your free gift. I cannot keep myself alive. I can't forgive myself. It's very interesting. Revelation is a powerful illustration that God alone is eternally self-sufficient and needing nothing, and we are not self-sufficient, and we need everything, and we need him. Verse 8. Here comes the ultimate and final global warming. You know, we hear about it all the time, and it's true. The, the temperatures, our recorded temperatures, are going up all over the world. It's having effect. I mean, the, there are amazing things happening. I mean, they don't think that birds are going to be able to live in Kuwait. You know, Kuwait over in the Gulf area, the, the mean average temperature of Kuwait keeps going up so much that it's reaching a point, if it goes right to here, birds cannot live. Now, they're dying in Mexico City because of the pollution, not the temperature. They're going to die in the Gulf region because of the temperature. So there is, now, you know, people, they, they struggle with this. At the present time, with every scientific measurement going on, there is a gradual increase in measured temperatures. So we don't have to fight about that. But look at this. Look what happens in verse 8. Then the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and the power was given to him to scorch men with fire. You talk about global warming. This is the ultimate global warming when God just takes the thermostat and goes, wow, starts frying people. God, the sun, the creator of all, again, touches the sun. It gets scorching hot. If it lasts long enough, the polar caps would melt and the remaining humans would find few places to flee once those polar caps melt. That's why all these things are happening very rapidly. Fifthly, in, in 4 to 7, it talked about the dying of thirst because all the water is gone. And I wrote this, life without Jesus is like dying of thirst. Only Jesus has satisfying power. He's the promise, the one that promised us we'll never thirst. Do you know why we thirst? Now we're getting into spiritual things because of sin. And so what the Lord is saying in John 7, 37, on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out and said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And he who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Did you know that's how we're supposed to be going through life? You and I, we're going out into the desert of this world with everyone around us dying in various degrees of thirst. 
I'm not talking about not having aquafina. I'm talking about spiritual thirst. They don't know why they're here. They don't know. I, I mean, that's why people commit suicide. Because they, they just, they don't see any purpose to go on. That's dying of thirst. And what we're supposed to be is kind of like fire hydrants. You ever see New York City or any Philadelphia, any of them, where the firemen come at the height, you know, one of the hottest days of summer, and they bring out that great big wrench, and the big red or yellow or whatever color the fire hydrants are, they, you know, turn them on, and they blow out, you know, that, that white spray of water, and you see just kids running around. Uh, that, probably they don't allow that anymore because it's dangerous. But in the old days, when I was little, that used to be the big thing. You know, the firemen would crank and spray the water, and everybody would get wet, kind of like going to the water park or something. But you know what? When I see that, I think all of us are fire hydrants. And we're walking around with everyone around us dying of thirst. And we have rivers of living water inside of us. But until we surrender and say, Lord, I want to be your instrument of your gospel, of your righteousness, of your truth. I want your life to flow through me. We're just fire hydrants until the Holy Spirit cranks us and lets us, we allow him to spray out through us. I hope that's what witnessing is. It's spraying the rivers of life-giving water to people around us. Life without Jesus is also like being enslaved. Look at verse 8 and 9. They were scorched with great heat. Verse 9 says, They blasphemed the name of God who has power over these plagues, and they did not... What does that say? Repent and give him glory. Wow. Look at verse 11. They blaspheme the God. Every time he cranks up one more judgment, pours out one more bowl, they blaspheme God, verse 11. It sounds almost like a repeat of verse 9. They blaspheme the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and they did not repent of their deeds. Wow. That's hard-heartedness. Life without Jesus is being enslaved to the worst master. Sin is the worst master. Satan is the worst master. Our fallenness is the worst master. Jesus has liberating power. Remember? What he, look what he says in John 8, 31. Jesus said to the Jews who believed him, if you abide in my word, you're my disciples. Verse 32, you'll know the truth. The truth will make you free. That's how you know that you know me. I'm the truth. I set you free. They answered and said, we're Abraham's descendants. We've never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say we'll be made free? Verse 34, Jesus said, most assuredly I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. Everyone born into this world are enslaved at birth. They sin by choice, by nature, by divine decree. That's the theological description. What it means is, it's not the environment around us, our parents or whatever, that make us bad. We were born bad. See, that's the gospel. That's our fallenness, our sinfulness. And whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. A slave doesn't abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, verse 36, if the son makes you free, you're free indeed. Jesus is the one who sets us free. You see what I said in the top paragraph? Are you allowing Jesus to set you free? You want to know? In fact, I just I posted this morning, my devotional I posted on uh, YouTube this morning, and I launched it with prayer. I said, how to know for sure you're saved. 
you know, and I just, it's like, I can't wait to see how many YouTube watchers are interested in assurance of salvation. But what I talked about is the way that you understand whether or not you're saved is just let God do what he promised he'd do to, to know that you're connected to him. So any of you, do you want to know if you're connected to God? This is how you know if you're connected to God. Are you allowing Jesus to set you free? He wants to. He's able to. He promised to. He did everything it takes to set you free. What's the holdup? We down deep don't want to be free. We actually still like our sin. Sanctification is me less and less and less liking sin. And then spiritual maturity is me not only not liking it, I hate it. That's how you know if you're growing. Not you hate sinners. There's some people, you know, the ones that march around and protest at the funerals of people that had AIDS, you know, protesting. Remember that crazy church, I don't know where they were from, that were protesting at funerals because the people were, were what they called, you know, the, the worst of sinners. We're not supposed to hate sinners. We're supposed to love them and hate the sin that so easily besets us. See, as Christians, we, we confuse the world. Let's talk about being made free. Let's see, I'm halfway through my slides, and it's 1040. It's going to be interesting. I was preparing my message, like I always do. Um, I was trained that you spend one half of your 60-hour week working in the ministry studying, the other half with the people. So I spent 30 hours a week discipling, nurturing, teaching classes, visiting people, doing funerals and weddings and counseling and everything. And I spent 30 hours a week for 38 years. That's a lot of hours studying the Bible. And in my 30 hours a week studying the Bible, I would get in my office and I'd have all my, you know, my Bible and I'd be writing out longhand. I've written out every message I've ever taught in entirety since I started in the ministry. You know, people all the time say, oh, how, how, how can you do all these things and have books and everything else? I said, it's very easy. If you wrote out everything you learn in the scripture, you have this growing amount of material that you have studied. So I was in writing and studying, and when I, I was listening, I heard scuffling outside the door of my office in my secretary's, the pastor's secretary. She was about, her name was Kay. She was about 84 years old. She was only about this tall. Fiery. She'd been the She'd been the secretary for all the pastors for the last 50 years, I think, or 60. I'm not sure if she started in her 20s or 30s. She was great. She knew the church. She knew everything. And what a blessing she was. And I could hear her, I could hear her making sounds. Then I heard bump against the door. And someone was actually bumping my door. And I thought, oh, maybe it's a robbery or something. So I opened the door, and she came in like this. And she was going like this. And there was this man. He was a little taller than me. He, he was one of these power lifter guys, you know, kind of like in the gym, uh, the extreme gyms. I don't know what they call them, but, you know, the ones where they take the big balls and hang and do, you know, endless pull-ups and everything. I mean, he was built like Arnold Schwarzenegger used to be built when he was Mr. America and Mr. Universe or whatever he was. Well, I knew who this guy was. I'd seen him since I started pastoring there. He was this fitness guy. He walked our town Whenever it was over 50 degrees, he walked our town, every part of the town. I don't think he had a job. He just worked out all the time. He wore these shorts that were too short for a man to wear. 
they, they, they were just too little. I mean, you just kind of went, oh, you tried to look away. It, it's like, come on, get them down a little. You need board shorts. You know, those are too short. But what he, that's all he wore. The rest was dripping with perspiration. When he power walked, he had, I don't know if they were 5 pounds or 10 pounds or 20 pounds. He walked around like this. Just sweating, rippling with muscles, showing us all how unfit we were. Found out, I mean, I later, he became a dear friend of mine. He was like a army ranger. Uh, he was, uh, I don't know what level, black belt. I don't know how high you can get, but he was way up there. Um, you know, served in the, in the armed forces, fitness nut. Amazing. So there he was in his little tiny shorts with my 84-year-old secretary not wanting to touch him because he was wet and didn't have clothes, enough clothes on. She was going like this. He was trying to get in my office, and I was studying, so she was protecting me. This tall, he was this tall. I mean, it was the most... I wish back then we had, you know, instant pictures because I would show you the picture right now. It was the funniest thing I'd ever seen. And so I said, Kay, what's up? She said, he wants to bother you. And I told him he can't bother you. I said... What did he say he wanted? He's standing right there. And he said to me, he said, I want to talk to you about the people in this church. And I said, great, come in. I'm the one to talk to. So here, Mr. Power Walker comes in and, and stands dripping in my office. Drip, drip, all that sweat was coming off of him. And I said, what would you like to know about our church? You know, I still had my Bible in my hand because I was studying. I said, what do you want? He says, I power walk. I said, I know, I've seen you for months. He said, I power walk through your parking lot. I said, I know, I've seen you for months. He said, I would like to know one thing. Why, when I walk through your parking lot, do I feel peacefulness? He said, I feel something. He said, it's wonderful. He said, in fact, I actually walk a little extra slower through your parking lot. He said, I like to walk by the people when they're coming into the services. And, you know, the people were bothered by that. They would have their kids not look at him because... The mother said, you shouldn't dress like that to their little kids, and you shouldn't show off and everything. And so he was not a positive thing to the church people. I mean, I just thought, that's his thing, you know, and don't bother him. He's not harming anybody. He's, in fact, he made me feel bad, like I need to lose weight or something, but, or, you know, do barbells. But the short of it is, he wanted to know, what was he asking me? He spiritually sensed there was something different about the congregation of that church. So he came to me. By the way, you know what he said? I would like to know, Father, why those people are so different. He thought I was a Roman Catholic. I mean, that's all he knew is everybody that's religious must be Catholic. So I said, hey, let me share with you why the people in our church are so different. What they have in my hand? My Bible. So I started sharing, and I just went through the plan of salvation. But actually, to tell you the truth, up close, it just was hard. It was distracting to look at him. So I just was reading my Bible like this, so I didn't have to look at all the sweat running down him. And I just kept sharing, and finally when I got to the end, I said, and what would keep you? And I went like this with my Bible. He was gone. I thought, he left. He was actually down on his knees on the floor. He had gotten to the point of me sharing the gospel that he, and, and I was just reading through the Romans road like I did for you a couple days ago, and I was reading through it, and he had slowly gotten down on his knees, and I looked, 
And he looked up at me and he said, that's what I want. It was one of the best leadings to the Lord I'd ever had. I got down next to a sweating, wet man, went through, he prayed the most beautiful prayer. By the way, you know what he told me about himself? He loved to go to bars. And by the way, he wore clothes when he went to the bars. And he said he would always pick the most provocative woman at the bar. You know, the one, the, the, the blonde that's kind of the envy of everybody or whatever it was. And he would slide up next to her and sit, you know, you know, either in her chair or in the chair next to her, hoping the boyfriend would challenge him. And almost always it happened. And he loved for that boyfriend to kind of push him away and say, that's my girl or whatever. And he, he'd say, okay, you want to fight? And he told me he knocked her. They would start the fight. They'd try to throw the first punch, and he would knock him out. And he said, I, I always got the girl. Because, you know, who wouldn't want that thing? And so he told me that, that he loved to harm people. He loved to fight. Uh, he was very immoral. He told me all this as I was discipling him. Well, let me show you Titus 3, because this is the best part, and then we've got to keep going. Titus chapter 3. I gave him a Bible, and I told him that he needed to start reading it, and we'd meet every week and talk about it, and I would disciple him. So I gave him a paperback Bible. The very next Sunday, now you know it only takes 18 hours to read the whole New Testament. This was on Monday on Sunday, he came to me and he said, at church, by the way, he came to church fully dressed. In fact, I never saw him again, the rest of my years I lived there, ever dressed like that again. Isn't that amazing? I didn't talk to him. I didn't say anything. He just stopped all that exhibitionism. He said to me, Sunday, I found myself in the Bible. I said, what do you mean? He said, I'm, I'm in the Bible. I said, I want to see. He said, it's in Titus. I said, what? Titus! I said, Titus, yeah, Titus, okay, where are you in, in Titus? Verse 3 of chapter 3, he said, and here he is standing, and all these people from the parking lot of the church know who this is, and people were listening, and he said, he didn't have a little voice, he had an outdoor voice. We ourselves were also foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy. We were hateful and hating one another. He said, that was me. He said, that's exactly my life until I walked into your office. And then he said, verse 4, but when the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. That's the testimony he gave at his baptism. Boy, did it make everybody in the church want to be really nice in the parking lot because they all want to see who else would want to know Christ through them.